Well, let me add my welcome. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. It is great to see you. If I have never met you, you've joined us on a great evening. We are starting a sermon series in Isaiah. It's called Trust the God Who. And let me just repeat what LT said. Please grab a booklet. If you, if you need a booklet now, perhaps raise your hand and I'll get Ben and Georgie to hand them out. Keep your hands raised and Ben and Georgie will bring, a book, bring you a booklet uh, bring them to church, use them for your daily Bible readings, use them at your hive groups. There's also a, a, a song for the week, uh, which relates to the topic of each sermon you're going to be hearing. I want to recommend one more book. It's called Isaiah by the Day, a new devotional translation, a daily devotions on the book of Isaiah by Alec Matia. I've been doing it. I'm loving it. Uh, you can get that from Kurong. There's a great verse on the, on the screen. It's from Isaiah 26, verse 4. I just love this verse. Isaiah writes, Trust in the Lord forever, because the Lord is an everlasting rock. Isn't that a beautiful verse? Trust in the Lord forever, for all time, because he is an everlasting rock. He is secure, he is stable, he is dependable. And what Isaiah is saying is, Uh, No matter what your situation in life is, you've got to trust God. No matter what your circumstance in life is, will you really trust God? No matter what season of life you're in, either highs or a low, will you trust God? No matter how bad life gets, will you really keep on trusting him? No matter what the world says or no matter how chaotic the world is, no matter how you feel or how alone you feel, will you really trust God? I spent months in the book of Isaiah and I really think that is the big theme of Isaiah. Will you trust the eternal living God? Look at these verses, Isaiah 12 verse 2. God is my salvation. I will trust him and not be afraid. It's like Isaiah is talking to himself. God is my salvation, so I will trust him. I will not be afraid, for God is my strength and my song. Sometimes as Christians we have to talk to ourselves, don't we? Remind ourselves that God is our salvation, that he is trustworthy. He is strong, and you can trust him. You don't need to fear life. Or what I think is the key verse of Isaiah, Isaiah 7 verse 9, if you do not stand in your faith, you will not stand at all. As the, the, the trials of life come, if you, if you stop trusting in God, you will stumble, you will fall. So trust in the Lord. Trust is a, is a, is a, is a beautiful word, isn't it? The word trust means to depend on, to rely on, to believe in, to be confident of, But the object of our trust is the most important thing, isn't it? Who do you trust in? You trust in God, the one that Isaiah calls the the Lord God of hosts, the Holy One of Israel, the Lord Almighty, the God of God, the kind God, the compassionate God, the holy God, the faithful God. He's the one that you trust in. The trust is, is is a beautiful, beautiful word to depend on, to rely on, to trust in. It's a hard word, isn't it? 
you know, in, in your Christian life or just in life in general where you're going through the tough times and that well-meaning friend oh, says, says oh, oh, just trust God. And you want to slap them, don't you? Or that well-meaning preacher starts a sermon series by saying, oh, just trust God. And inside you're kind of, you're kind of fuming, thinking, if only you knew I've tried trusting God, I really have, and he's let me down again and again and again, so prove it. Why should I bother trusting him again? See, trust is an easy word to say. It's very hard to do, isn't it? But over the next 11 weeks, as we go through Isaiah again and again and again, Isaiah will say to us, keep trusting God. He loves you. He cares for you. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. You can trust him. So I want to start this series by asking you a very simple question. Do you really trust God? Right. Do you really deeply, whatever life throws at you, do you have this steadfast confidence and reliance and dependence on your God? Or perhaps a bigger question, do you, do you want to learn to trust him more? Do you want to leave here 11 weeks time with a deeper trust in your God? Yeah, it, Trust is, is a relational word. Now, as you get to know people better, you learn to trust them more, or you learn to trust them less. Uh, so what we're going to do over the next 11 weeks is each week we're going to focus on a different aspect of God's character. His holiness. His power. His might. His kingship. His love. His knowledge. His judgment. His forgiveness. And my deep, deep desire is that you would leave here really trusting him more. Isaiah is a, is a massive book. It's been described as the, the Romans of the Old Testament. It's 66 chapters long. It's quoted 66 times in the New Testament. And to be honest, I've avoided preaching it for the last 15 years. So turn to page 620. Isaiah chapter 1, and just to give you some context here, Isaiah was written about 700 years before Jesus stepped onto the earth. Let me just read verse 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Amos saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, king of judah uh, what's extraordinary is that it's one of the longest books in the bible but we learn very little about isaiah the man practically nothing about isaiah and everything about his god uh, we, we do know the the people he's talking to he's talking to the people of judah and jerusalem there's a map on your should be a map up there so, so Judah is the, the southern tribes of, of, of Israel. The two tribes with the capital of, of Jerusalem to the south is, is Egypt. That's less powerful than it used to be. Uh, to the east is the Babylonians. They're going to appear in chapters 40 to 66. To the north are the Assyrians. They're going to appear in chapters 1 to 39. And the Assyrians are kind of the superpower of the day. They're the most powerful nations of the world. And their aim is to conquer the world. So you've got these tiny 
nation of Judah that is being attacked by the Assyrians. And if you were part of God's people living at this time, you'd be asking questions. Is my God strong enough? Is my God powerful enough? Is God in control of this chaos in this world? Maybe you're sitting here tonight and you've asked those questions as well. Is my God strong enough? Is my God able? Is is my God in control? So geographically, that's where we are. Historically, this prophecy scans about a hundred years. The reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. You've got four coins here with the heads of those four kings. Uzziah reigned for 52 years. It was a period of peace and prosperity. He was a good king. His son, Jotham, was a pretty bad king. King Ahaz, he was evil. He was plain nasty. He even sacrificed his son to a foreign god. That's how detestable he was. Hezekiah appears in the second half of the book. He, he tries to do the right thing. He tries to stand firm, but he's pretty weak. And Isaiah's vision comes in chapter 6, where if you, if you know Isaiah, uh, Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord Almighty sits on his throne, surrounded by the seraphim. And they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And you know, it's that vision of God who is reigning, that vision of God who's on his throne, that, that keeps Isaiah going throughout his life and throughout his ministry. And I want to say, Church by the Bridge, you've got to have an understanding that God is on his throne, and God is reigning, and God is ruling, because that will get you through life. You know, ISIS is not king. God is king. And Donald Trump is not king, but God is king. And your worst enemy is not king, because God is king. So trust him. Let's hear chapter 1 of Isaiah. I'm going to invite our Bible readers to come and read Isaiah 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 4. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's feeding trough, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. O sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on him. Why do you want more beatings? Why do you keep on rebelling? The whole head is hurt and the whole heart is sick. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, no spot is uninjured. Wounds, welts and festering sores, not cleansed, bandaged or soothed with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Foreigners devour your fields before your very eyes, a desolation demolished by foreigners. Daughter Zion is abandoned like a shelter in a vineyard, like a shack in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would resemble Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. 
What are all your sacrifices to me, asks the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight, stop doing evil, learn to do what is good, seek justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come, let us discuss this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The faithful city, what an adulteress she has become. She was once full of justice. Righteousness once dwelt in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your beer is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, friends of thieves. They all loved graft and chase after bribes. They do not defend the rights of the fatherless. And the widow's case never comes before them. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, I will gain satisfaction from my foes. I will take revenge against my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and will burn away your dross completely. I will remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges to what they once were and your advisors to their former state. Afterward, you will be called the righteous city, a faithful city. Zion will be redeemed by justice, her repentant ones by righteousness. But both rebels and sinners will be destroyed, and those who abandon the Lord will perish. Indeed, they will be ashamed of the sacred trees you desired, and you will be embarrassed because of the gardens you have chosen. For you will become like an oak whose leaves are withered, and like a garden without water. The strong one will become tinder, and his work a spark. Both will burn together, with no one to quench the flames. The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, the vision that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. They will turn their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against other nations, and they will never again train for war. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a pretty depressing, bleak start to a book, isn't it? 
I think for many of us who know Isaiah, we, we just like to cherry pick all, all our favorite verse. You know, comfort, comfort my people. You're sore on the wings of eagles. It's not how Isaiah starts. It's a bleak start to a beautiful book. Because, friends, you've got to understand the, the depth of your problem before you see how wonderful God's solution is. You've got to understand the depth of your depravity before you can grasp the magnitude of God's love for you. You've got to understand the depth of your sin before you can really marvel at God's grace. You know, the, the old hymn writers got it right. You know, sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. Our modern writers will just talk about being washed and being cleansed and being forgiven. They wouldn't talk about sin. But until you understand the depth of your depravity and the depth of your problem, then you will never have this heart full of wonder and gratitude and amazement at God's love for you in Jesus Christ. So we're going to start with sin, because that's where Isaiah starts. So rebellion. Trust God's verdict of our sin. Isaiah begins with a trial. God's people are on trial. God's people, God's children. He calls them his children. They're his sons. They're his daughters. They're his beloved ones. But God is like a lawyer with a case against these people. There's no spin. There's no masks. He just calls a spade a spade. See the image in verse 2? God says, I've raised children. I've raised sons and daughters, and I've brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. God looks at his people, he looks at his church and says, it's just like defiant kids. You ever seen those kids? Maybe you were one of those kids. You know, you, you disobeyed constantly, you questioned everything, you did exactly the opposite to what your mum and dad told you to do. And when you spot that and when you see that, it's not pleasant, is it? It's ugly. And God looks at his people and says, you are more defiant than, de- than rebellious kids. God has blessed them. He's constantly given them stuff. He's loved them. He's lavished them with love. But they've ignored him. They've lived without him. They don't like him. That was God's people then. And let's be honest, that's us today. So often before our goal, we can be like these petulant, defiant, rebellious kids. I don't like it, God. I know better than you, God. Let me define right. Let me define wrong. I don't like what you say. It gets worse in verse 3. He calls them dumb animals. And the dumb ox, at least it knows its owner. And the stubborn, stupid donkey, at least it knows its master. But Israel, God's people, they don't know. My people do not understand. Isaiah says, look, you are like stupid farm animals. You've forgotten that you belong to God. You don't listen and you don't understand. Now, how do you think God feels? Those of us are parents. How do we feel when our kids constantly defy us and rebel against us? And we lavish people with love and we affection and we make sacrifices, but, but our kids give us nothing back. Look at God's verdict in verse 5. 
God looks at his church and says, why do you want more beatings? Why do you keep on rebelling? The whole head is hurt, the whole heart is sick, from the, the sole of the foot even to the head, no spot is uninjured, wounds, welts, festering sores, not cleansed, bandaged or soothed with oil. It's this awful picture of life for God's people. They're, they're beaten, they're battered, they're bruised, they're hurting, and like a child before his father. A child stands before their father and they're covered from head to toe of sores and they're oozing pus everywhere. And you expect the parent's heart to ache, don't you? If your child was standing before you looking like that, you would be heartbroken, wouldn't you? And God is heartbroken. Of course he is. But this is the scary bit. Amongst the heartache, God kind of says, well, kids, you chose to live that way. You chose to ignore me. You chose to defy me. And you know, you never seem to learn. I want you to turn back. I want you to come home. But you kept going back for more beatings. And you kept on defying me. I find four, verse 4 quite interesting. Look at the words used to describe rebellion. They've abandoned the Lord. They despised the Holy One of Israel. They turned their back on God. Now that's the root of our sin, isn't it? We abandon our God, we turn our back on God, and we hate what God has to say. Let me be very clear. When we, when we, when we stop trusting God, and we start playing games with God, and when we start to try and define what is right and wrong, what is good and bad, and when we decide that we know better than God, that pride, prideful disposition that thinks that we know best, it always ends in disaster. So how bad was it for God's people? I mean, surely a little bit of sin won't make a big difference, will it? Look at verse 7. The promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, is now desolate and cities burned with fire and foreigners devouring fields, a desolation demolished by foreigners. It's kind of like the, you know, there's images you see on, your, on the news of Syria. Do you ever watch the news and see just a whole city just in rubbles? And there's like dead bodies everywhere. And just people walking past dead bodies. That was what it was like for God's people. And I'll say it again, church. We need to understand the depth of our depravity, the depth of our rebellion, the depth of our sin. Because until we see that, you will never fully grasp how amazing God's love for you is and that God's grace and forgiveness is. We don't talk much about sin in church, do we? We use euphemisms like, you know, sorrow, shame, brokenness. Listen to Jonathan Edwards, the preacher. His church, what are we that we should, we, we, that we should think to stand before God at whose rebuke the whole earth trembles. O sinner, O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It's a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath, that you are held over in the hands of an almighty God by the most slender of threads. So what does sin look like in Isaiah's day? This is the really, really scary bit. God's people 
looked the part. They were in the temple. They were offering the sacrifices. They were keeping the festivals. They were doing all the religious stuff. But their hearts were so far away from God. I find verses 11 to 15 really scary. God looks at his people, his church, and says, What are all your sacrifices to me? God loves sacrifices. God desires sacrifices. It's a beautiful thing when it's done with the right attitude. But you know, when you you come to the temple and you offer your sacrifices and you you walk out of the temple and immediately you ignore your God and rebel against God and you hate God and you despise God, it's all fake, isn't it? And look how angry God gets. Verse 11. God says, I've had enough. Enough, church. I've had enough of your burnt offerings. I've had enough of your fat and well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of your bulls. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals, says God. They've become a burden to me. I'm tired of putting up with them. You see, God knows our heart. God knows that we can come to church and we can look the part and we can say the prayers but but in our heart deep within our heart we walk out of this building and we ignore god we despise god and we hate god it's just all fake and god hates it he says in verse 15 when you lift up your hands in prayer i will refuse to look at you i don't mishear me god loves us to pray god longs to listen to our prayers but when it isn't really praying when it's all fake praying or presumptuous praying or a token nod to our God in times of need, then God hates it. He says, even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen because your hands are covered with blood. He says, you hypocrites. You have no concern for the poor. Verse 17. You don't defend the rights of the fatherless. You don't plead the cause of the widows. You cheat. You steal. You murder, you oppress, and you call yourself my people. Let me ask you, how, how are you feeling at this point, this point in time? It's pretty heavy, isn't it? Now, before we get to the comfort, comfort my people, and soaring on, on eagles' wings, you've got to understand that, that we are rebels before a holy, omnipotent God. And I was thinking this week, what would God's verdict be on our church? Would he call us defiant kids? Would he call us dumb animals? Would he call me a defiant child? Because I am, you know. And I think you probably are too. So trust God's verdict of sin. Please don't try and redefine what God says is wrong as right. Here's my second R. Repentance. Trust God's call to repent. Trust God's call to repent. See, God longs for his kids to come home. Like a father who longs for the rebellious child just to stop living the wrong way and start trusting mum and dad again. See that in verse 16? It's, it's, It's a plea if you want. He says, wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, 
Remove all your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing the wrong thing and learn to do what is good. That's called repentance, you know. Stop doing one thing, the wrong thing, and start doing the right thing. You've got a good definition of repentance. It's there in verse 16. Stop doing evil and learn to do what is good. I've been in uh, Australia now for almost 15 years. And there's one road sign that always makes me giggle. It's got four words in it. It says, wrong way, turn back. (laughs) Wrong way, turn back. And and it's pretty blunt, isn't it? And what is that sign saying? That sign saying, if you keep going this wrong direction, you are heading for disaster. So as you're driving your car along the motorway, and you see a sign saying, wrong way, turn back, uh, what's going to happen if you think, I know better than this sign? I'm just going to keep on driving. The sign is wrong. I am right. It's utter, utter disaster, isn't it? Turn around, stop your car, turn back, and go in the right direction. Now, that is repentance. It is different from remorse. Remorse is when you feel sorry for your sin or you feel sorry about the consequences or you feel a bit sad. Repentance is when you you grieve your sin and you mourn your sin. And like the Old Testament prophets, you you sit in sackcloth and ashes and and you're weeping because you've offended God so much. But then you start doing the right thing. Then you start living God's way. It's that total U-turn saying, I was wrong, God was right, and I want to start living God's way now. A few, a few uh, months ago, someone called me to repent of something. They sat me down and said, Paul, this is wrong, you to repent. And you know, everything within me wanted to say, how dare you? How dare you tell me to repent? But they were right. They were right because I was rebelling. It's the most loving thing you can do to call someone to repent. So when God calls his children to repent, he doesn't say it out of nastiness. He says it because he loves us. Listen to what Spurgeon says. Evangelical repentance is a repentance of sin as sin. Repent of the sin of our nature as well as the sin of our practice. We bemoan the sin within us. We bemoan the sin without us. Repentance of the evil act and not of the evil heart is like men pumping water out of a leaky vessel, but forgetting to stop the leak. See, true repentance is when you acknowledge that you've done the wrong thing and you deliberately change your ways. Now, do you see what that meant for God's people then? Verse 17. They were called to seek justice and correct the oppressor and defend the rights of the fathers and plead the widow's cause. They, they were called to start living in a way that reflected the character of their God who loves justice, who defends the rights of the fathers and pleads the cause of the widow. Do you remember when Jesus stepped on the earth? What are some of the first recorded words in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ? Mark chapter 1. The time is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. What's the next word? Repent and believe the good news. 
See, what Jesus is saying there is that it's not just about believing the good news, it's acknowledging that you need some, some repenting to do first. I want to ask you again, church, when was the last time you really searched your heart and you sat on your knees and you pleaded before your God and you wept before your God and you repented and changed your ways? I've been loving this book at the moment called Prone to Wander. Prayers of Confession and Celebration. And each day it gives you a, a few verses from Scripture and it calls you to confess. It gives you a prayer of confession that you can just read yourself and then gives you an assurance of God's forgiveness and then a hymn to listen to or a song to listen to to assure you you're forgiven. It's a beautiful book. I love this quote. Repentance is a school from which we never graduate. Repentance is a school from which we never graduate. So rebellion, trust God's verdict of sin. Repentance, trust God's call to repent. And lastly tonight, restoration. Trust God's promise of restoration. That is the book of Isaiah. It starts with the dark stuff. It ends with the good stuff. But you get a glimpse of it in verse 18, don't you? God is kind of dialoguing with his children like a father does. says, come on, come on kids, let's discuss this. Let's have a discussion. Though your sins are like scarlet, do you, do you agree with that? Yes. Well, they will be as white as snow. Wow. Though, you, though your sins are as red as crimson, yes they are, but they will be like wool. Wow. How's that going to happen? Well, verse 19, if you're willing and obedient, if you trust and obey because there's no other way, then God will restore you and you will eat the good things of the land. But, verse 20, if you refused and you rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. And what God says to the people of Isaiah's day is you've got a choice to make. You can trust God for restoration or you can try and do it your way. And if you try to do it your way, it always ends in disaster. And you get a glimpse in the rest of this chapter of God's beautiful Restoration. Do you see that down in verse 26? I will restore your judges to what they once were and your advisors to their former state and afterwards you will be called the righteous city and a, and a faithful city. Zion will be redeemed by justice. Her repentant ones by righteousness. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of God refining his people by giving them new rulers and a new attitude and a new title. And a new city. It's a bit like, you know, the, the parable that Jesus told of the prodigal son. And do you remember the younger son who, who one day just woke up and thought, I have been so stupid. My father's waiting for me and I've been so stupid. And so what did he do? He turned around and he went home. Father, I've sinned against you. I don't deserve to be called your son. And what's the father doing? Waiting. Willing. Longing. Arms wide open. Willing to restore and to accept and welcome home. Now that's the message of Isaiah. When God's people wake up and say, we've done the wrong thing, God. We've been stupid. What you find in Isaiah is a God who is always willing to forgive and always willing to restore and always longing for his kids to come home. 
It was pretty bad for God's people then. As you read Isaiah, they're captured by the Assyrians in 722 BC. They're captured by the Babylonians. They're taken to exile. They're captured by the Persians. But God in his kindness just, just, just keeps a tiny, tiny, tiny remnant. That's the picture of verses 30 and 31. You become like an oak whose leaves are withered and like a garden without water. The strong will become like tinder, his, his work a, a spark. Just, just a tiny, tiny remnant will remain. So I want to ask you, church, how, how do you know today that when you repent of your rebellion, that God will restore? How do you know today that when you repent of your rebellion, that God will restore you? Do you remember when Jesus was a young kid and he got lost one day and his parents were searching for him and they found him in the temple? Remember that story? And he's sitting in the temple and he's surrounded by all these teachers of the law and he's reading a scroll. What's he reading? The prophet Isaiah. And Jesus says, Today, this has been fulfilled in me. And then the miracle, friends, is that, is that we sit here today as the people who know that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah. He is the suffering servant that Isaiah talked about. He is the one who brings us comfort. He is the one who brings us hope. He is the one who restores us. And he is the one who will wash your crimson stain as white as snow. And that's why we stand here or sit here tonight, restored forgiven and loved by God. But you know, repentance is a school that you never graduate from. Don't you long for the day when your hearts are pure? Don't you long for the day where you always obey and you never question, you never doubt, and you really do trust God wholeheartedly? Don't you long for that day? The depressing news is that day will never come whilst you are living on this earth. But it will come one day. That's what Isaiah looks forward to in the beginning of chapter 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established. And all nations will stream to it. And many people will come and say, come. Let's go up to the mount of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways, so we may walk in his paths. Oh, bring on that day, yeah? The day of, of restoration, of total restoration, where all the nations will come flooding in, and they'll be worshipping the God of God and the King of Kings. Bring on the day of peace, verse 4, where nation will not take up the sword against other nations, and they will never again train for war. Bring on that day. But it's not now. It is then. So I want to ask you again as I end this sermon, do you really trust God? Do you trust him when he calls you a rebel? Or is there something within you that fights against that and say, how dare you, God? Do you trust him when he calls you to repent? Or is there something within you that says, how dare you, God? And do you trust him when he says, come to me, believe in me, and I will wash you, and I will cleanse you, and I will restore you because I'm your loving Heavenly Father, did you trust that God? What I thought we'd do tonight is we'd end the sermon by saying a confession together. And then move into a time of open prayer.